Saturday. Welcome to Behind the Couch, everyone. I am Dr. Shiloh. Um, I feel like I should have a different name today. Like, you're really good at making up names. I, I think you should, know. like, if we're going to do, you're, if you're going to be like a gangster mall from the 40s, it's got to be Dr. Cookie. <laughs> that works. <laughs> and what's your name tonight, Dr. Scott? Uh, I'm Dr. Emil Schufhausen from the Schufhausen Institute <laughs> in Vienna, and my oh, services wow. are very expensive. Oh, I bet they are. Hmm. Can be a little saucy tonight. <laughs> oh, look. Look what I have. <gasps> Using my vintage. Oh, are those the glasses we gave you? Yes. Oh, I love them. Yeah, I, I, won't, I won't go into it, but I had to share with Shiloh last night that I had a bizarre bizarre night last night and i came home when the first thing as i walked through the door i looked at at my husband dan and i was like can i have one of your magic cocktails please i need it like really stacked. Yeah. yeah yeah it was crazy and i had it in that glass you don't want to process anything you okay yeah wanna- okay. um this is the same space with these people that we have here our lovely crowd it's so, up to you uh I want to be careful because I didn't, I was talking to my, one of, one of my several beloved sisters this morning and I did not reveal to her that I witnessed the aftermath of a crime last night right outside my house. And, um, it was quite surreal and bloody and, you know, um, I, I am fine. I am fine. All of my neighbors are fine. Um, unfortunately a poor young man who was in our neighborhood, um, I guess partying or something. He did not fare so well, and I witnessed it on the aftermath. So, shit gets real. Like when it gets real, it gets real. You know. As you you were saying, it was surreal, and that was the perfect word for it. When you come up on something like that, totally unexpected, just coming home, you know, after a week work week. So. Well, and you you saw this kind of stuff as law enforcement all the time. I mean, you would see dead bodies, or you would see people at their last. Yeah. At their last moments. I mean, I've seen a lot of people at their last moments in hospital settings, not in a public setting. That was quite shocking. It is so different. Um, But yes, very surreal and just feels like an out-of-body experience. And I'm surprised you slept last night. I was like, oh, he's he's definitely not going to get any sleep. He's just going to be wired. But good. I'm glad you did. I don't know. Maybe that's shock. Maybe the shock was like a tranquilizer for me or something. So Yeah. Welcome, Esther. Glad you can make it. Esther, Jason, oh my gosh, we've got a whole crowd this time. Thank you so much, guys. Well, let's see. Well, we should do, you, I mean, everybody here knows why we're doing the vintage thing, but we're just, but you want to re, kind of recap that for everybody? Yeah, especially we're going to throw this on you, up on YouTube, and I feel like we've had a ton of new subscribers this week. So um, we don't do this every week. I think the last YouTube video, I was in a Dodgers baseball t-shirt. So that's my norm. Um, (laughs) but Scott and I are in the middle of a series on the podcast that are all about vintage Los Angeles crimes. I mean, this is sort of like our theme for our show as far as aesthetics and, um, you know, what we try to bring to the title and living up to the title of LA, not so confidential. So, um, yeah, we've, we've covered, Let's see, a crime at the Cecil Hotel in the 40s. We've done the Winehouse chicken coop murders in the 20s. Wineville. I'm sorry, Winehouse. The Amy Amy Winehouse chicken coop murders. (laughs) Wouldn't that be a crossover? Um, So we're going to do a couple more in March. So we are, um, yeah. (laughs) Shiana says, imagine that hair. Woo! So, yeah, we're in the middle of our series right now. Last Thursday, we did this watch party event, which was, it blew me away. It was so much fun. I could hardly keep up with the film because of the dozen or so people that were there watching with us. And it was just so much fun and hilarious to sit in my bed and watch this noir film with. That was all your idea. I mean that we've been talking about having a watch party, but that was your idea to do a noir film, and we—that's that's going to be a regular thing. So thank you for that idea. It it sounds like um, people had fun, and um, I I had a blast. I thought it was great. We should 
do it again in a couple of weeks. So, or at least for our patrons. Um, but yeah, it was just a blast. So we're kind of keeping this going with this theme. <laughs> what are you laughing at? What'd you catch? Jason was like, there was a film. I mean, that was part of it. I mean, it was, we definitely were splitting our, our, our uh, focus as uh, the film itself was actually pretty good and has some really great moments. There are a couple of really kind of stellar acting moments. Oh, yeah. And there were certainly some themes of, you know, sort of, of psychopathy and domestic violence and big time anger management issues. Like it was big. And, but the conversation, I mean, I wanted to add in some trivia. So I had done like some research so I could cut and paste some of the biggest trivia about the actors in the movie. But everybody can thank, and most of you are here, everybody contributed to that conversation in a really spectacular way. Shannon, Pia, Tor, I mean, everybody, yeah. like, I mean, we were having fun, but there was some really interesting conversation about sort of like, it was a different time and, you know, uh, re- uh, um, sort of male and female role norms were pretty distinctly prescribed at that time. Yeah, we watched In a Lonely Place. I think it was made in 1950. Um, it might be a little tad earlier than that, but um I hadn't seen it before. It was great. I was so happy. Like I randomly picked something. I hadn't seen it either. You picked one I had not seen. Yeah. Um, It was perfection. So, so much fun. We hope to do it again. And tonight you guys had, um, we had so many suggestions from listeners and on social media about what cases we should cover in this series. And we can't get to all of them. So we thought we would take the get vocals to do that. Um, So we have some suggestions. Gosh, I feel like this time is going to go really fast tonight. Um, so I want to jump into our story. If anyone wants to come on, please, I'm going to leave these spots open. Feel free. Um, one thing, we're going to make a change at the suggestion of a patron. We're going to start. I'm really liking my arch on my eyebrow, by the way. I, you're on fleek. completely. Um, <laughs> um, so we are going to start doing trigger warnings at the beginning of our episodes. We should actually go back and probably do them for all of them if we can. Um, so I'm going to give a trigger warning for mine right now. <laughs> um, so the story I'm going to talk about talks about sexual assault, penetration with a foreign object, and murder as the result of possibly a violent sexual assault. Um, so I am going to talk about the Fatty Arbuckle case. Um, so I think, you know, everyone's kind of heard of this a little bit, and this was the first time I really dug a little bit deeper to know what this story was all about. But I think the urban legend version of this story that's mostly told is not, in fact, the truth. Um, you may know this story as one of kind of this Hollywood party gone wrong. It's 1921. There's a violent rape possibly with a foreign object like a champagne bottle of an actress by a very large, unruly actor that ultimately led to the woman's death. And there were three trials that followed, actually three court hearings. They weren't exactly all trials, which I'll get into. Um, And each of them acquitted him of her murder. So Rebecca nailed it. Huge Weinstein vibes, but at least this man had some trials. Um, My sources for this were the incredible podcast, You Must Remember This, a podcast by Karina Longworth. All of her series are amazing, especially if you like vintage Hollywood stuff, as well as an article um, put out by the BBC that was written by Jude Sheeran in 2001. So here we go. Um, Roscoe... Fatty Arbuckle, he was a stage actor turned film star in the silent era, like the 19-teens. He grew up as a singer, even as a child, and um, had a rough childhood. He was physically abused by his father. He left in um, at the age of 16 to go pursue vaudeville. So he goes off to vaudeville, um, ends up marrying another uh, stage actress who he was with for a very long time. And he was really described as a really magical comedic actor. He discovered Buster Keaton um, and helped mentor Charlie Chaplin. So he eventually comes to Los Angeles 
gets involved in the film industry, the silent film industry um, for that time and becomes such a star that he ends up having his own production company. He is making a ton of money and has one of the biggest contracts at that time. Um, and then eventually, you know, just blows up, huge star, literally and figuratively. He's a very, very big man, hence the nickname. Um, and then he separates his wife, but they keep that out of the public eye because they thought that actually a star of his capacity couldn't survive a public divorce. Um, so they choose to keep it under wraps. So he's our sort of main person in this story. And then we have Virginia Rappe. So Virginia was a model and a fashion designer and an actress. And she also had rough beginnings. She was orphaned at 11. And she started modeling at 16 and was very successful as a model. Um, in You Must Remember This, the articles that they dug up described her as what we would liken to a supermodel these days. She was traveling the country, um, appearing in fashion shows, walking in fashion shows, uh, in malls, uh, not malls, they didn't have malls then, department stores, that's what I'm looking for, um, and actually decided to start designing fashion and was very successful at it. She was in the newspapers a lot, being interviewed, um, somewhat of a feminist, really wanted women to use their creativity and get out there and do these sort of creative jobs rather than just being um, secretaries somewhere. So she ends up coming to Los Angeles. She was kind of in the high society of San Francisco when she was more into the fashion industry. And then she eventually moves to LA and she begins dating an executive at a studio and it happens to be the studio where Fatty Arbuckle is under contract. So she knows him through that. Um, and then, you know, just kind of the same circle. She's dating the executive. She gets some parts because of dating this executive, but small parts, not much. But by the summer of 1921, she's 30. Her boyfriend leaves and goes to New York and the acting work kind of dries up for her. Um, so this all leads up to an incident on Labor Day weekend of 1921. Virginia happens to be going up to San Francisco with a couple of friends of hers, um, a male friend that she knows, and then uh, another woman comes along that she doesn't know super well, but they're getting along well and hanging out. And it just so happens that Fatty Arbuckle is up there and has, some of his friends are up there and he's basically gonna throw this party at the St. Francis, um, which is now the West End St. Francis. You can still you can still actually rent out the suite on the 12th floor where this all happened. Um, I told Scott that earlier. He was like, yeah, no, that's gross. <laughs> we might go to the Lizzie Borden house. I will gladly stay in the Lizzie Borden house, but I'm not gonna stay in the Fatty Arbuckle suite unless, I don't know. Now you're, you're really revealing more information than I knew about that case. So yeah. yeah yeah, we'll see. If it's well appointed, I might consider it. <laughs> okay. Um, so he's there and like, you know, the, there's this very close-knit circle. Um, a friend of his sees Virginia in the lobby of a different hotel and basically invites her to this party that they're going to have. And so she tells her friend, like, hey, I'm going to go check out this party at the St. Francis. If it sucks, I'll be back in like 20 minutes. Well, Turns out, I guess it was pretty fun because she calls her friend up and says, hey, come hang out. So the female friend comes to go hang out with her and they're there for hours. Um, I think their male friend asked if he could drive them back and they were like, no, we're having fun. We're going to stay longer. So they were drinking. I love the way this sounds. I've never had one, but they were drinking um, orange blossoms with gin guess that's a thing. Sounds nice. I don't know. Like gin and orange juice? I don't know. I don't know. I'm look that up because it sounds look at the recipe. <laughs> um, and they were drinking the orange blossoms and they were drinking scotch. So at one point, as the first story goes, um, she goes she goes to use the restroom in Arbuckle's room. Um, and he has a room in the suite. And basically he enters the room after her, locks the door behind him. And 
Hours later, she comes to and wakes up and she's in a different room on a different bed and she's in severe abdominal pain. A doctor is called, her friend um, has a doctor come. The first doctor shoots her up with morphine and says, eh, she just needs to rest. So her friend's like, eh, that's not cutting it. Um, she calls another doctor and he says, no, she's suffering from alcohol poisoning. She just needs to rest and it'll move its way through her system. Three days later, she is no better. She's been basically holed up in this hotel. They thought it better just to keep her there for whatever reason. Um, she ends up getting transferred to a sanitarium where she is finally seen by some doctors and she's diagnosed with an infection of the abdominal lining, which they they say is is caused by what they can tell either a ruptured fallopian tube or a ruptured bladder. So this sounds awful. And she's been in this state for at least three days. And a day after being taken to the sanitarium, basically, you know, a little less than a week after this whole incident, uh, Virginia Rappe dies and she's 25 years, or I'm sorry, she was 30 years old. So an initial autopsy, and I use autopsy loosely, the doctors that were working there, yeah, the doctors that were working there decided to do their own autopsy. They said they couldn't get a hold of the coroner. Um, basically, they found some bruising on her upper arms, her thighs, but said there was no evidence of sexual assault. Finally, the real coroner, you know, of course, the sanitarium's like, hey, coroner, when are you going to come pick up her body? And the coroner's like, I had no idea. And he does his own um, examination. And Yes, he finds the bruises as well, um, but he also finds what he said was chronic inflammation of the bladder and that the bladder looked as if it had been punctured by some external force. Mm. So here's where the theories start as to what that could be. Um, there's a couple of different accounts that come out. Her friend Maud said that basically... Virginia was in the room with Arbuckle for about 30 minutes before Maude goes over there and starts knocking on the door. And basically he opens up the door and Virginia's on the bed, kind of writhing around in pain, holding her stomach and her clothes are torn. Arbuckle gets on a steamship and flees to Los Angeles after this incident. And basically reporters are waiting for him at his house. And he says, Oh, I was never alone with her. Um, LAPD ends up doing a search of his buddy's house and finds her torn clothing there. So almost like they had brought this evidence back from the crime scene. And he says, oh, I just took them home because I thought they'd be good for rags. So, yeah, yeah. Terrible, terrible story there. Hang on. Let me drink out of my beautiful glass. So they end up arresting Arbuckle. For They charge him initially with, they go straight with murder as a result of a perpetrated rape. Um, his movies were all pulled from the West Coast. Surprisingly, her movies, in which she had smaller parts, end up getting re-released. And this makes her a bigger movie star in death than she was when she was living. Um, it's kind of macabre in the way they, uh, almost like a publicity stunt to get some more money out of these movies. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a grand jury, um, and there are two nurses at the grand jury who testify and they're from the sanitarium. One nurse said that Virginia had told her that she had been intimate with Arbuckle. So she used those words, um, almost implying that this was consensual, that this was something that either was consensual or she was ashamed of. Or maybe she was a victim of a sexual assault and there was shame around that. Um, and then another nurse reported that Victoria told her that she had been having some internal problems for about six weeks. So it seems like we have like this ongoing medical issue that is being validated by the doctors as well as the, um, you know, during the autopsy of this chronic bladder issue. And then this possible sexual assault happening. So... 
a coroner, he gets on the stand at the grand jury and he again says it looks as if the bladder was ruptured and they press him to say, well, what do you mean ruptured? Do you mean like naturally? And he said, well, no, with some force. Mm. So the some force is really where they're able to um, then say that there is enough to charge him with murder because of this, this magic word of force. And then they press him even further and he's, he basically gives an opinion kind of out of nowhere that it could have been done with a foreign object, a finger, something like that. But I mean, that, that's where that whole part starts. That's where that rumor starts. And not, we're not saying that a rape didn't occur. It, right. like, it could have occurred. She could have had, I mean, like a clearly at bare minimum, she, if she had al- alcohol poisoning, then she was not able to give consent. Well, of course, that, exactly. that whole concept of consent at that time, exactly. but even I remember Hearst at the time, uh, Randolph Hearst said it, that this incident sold more papers than the sinking of the Lusitania. Oh, well, it, it's interesting because there's um, the podcast. You must remember this goes into this whole dynamic about Hearst. And um, I guess he had put a bunch of money into Paramount Pictures and it wasn't panning out very well. And so this was kind of a payback where he was just going to drag Arbuckle's name through the mud. Um, anyway, side sidebar, go listen to that wonderful podcast if you want to hear more about that. Um, so the so the coroner testifies in the grand jury, and then they end up doing a preliminary hearing. So a preliminary hearing, a grand jury says, yes, indict this person. A preliminary hearing is a hearing to see if there's enough evidence to move on with a trial. Very long, laborious process. Um, the prelim is packed with female friend, female fans of Fatty Arbuckle, which I thought was so interesting because mm. that's a phenomenon that we have seen throughout recent decades. And this was a hundred years ago, a hundred years ago. Wow. So, um. So at the prelim, a maid testifies and says that she heard she I guess she was in the suite and behind Arbuckle's bedroom door, she heard a woman scream no. And then she heard a man say shut up. Um, The defense put on no witnesses for the prelim. And basically the judge said, you know, this maid is the most believable witness because she was the only one that wasn't drunk there. Um, so we're going to go ahead and, and move ahead, but we're only charging him with manslaughter. So the charges get reduced a bit and then they go to trial number one. So there's the hearing and then there's two trials. Um, so hearing number one, Arbuckle gets on the stand. He testifies. He says that he gone, he had gone into his bedroom to change into a robe. And when he sort of came out of one section of the bedroom, Virginia was in his bathroom vomiting So he picks her up. He puts her on the bed. Um, She rolls off the bed at some point and is just in pain, clutching her stomach, doubled over. Um, Then the treating doctor, like a, a personal treating doctor, testifies that, yes, he had been treating Virginia for years for bladder problems. Um, And there ends up being a deadlock jury. So it's it's very interesting. There was a couple of women on the jury. Um, they were made to feel very unsafe as part of being part of the jury. Um, and then there was this whole conversation afterwards of, well, maybe women shouldn't be on juries where sexual assault is involved because they see it as too awful. <laughs> Hang on. Wow. Let me take a sip. Yeah. Wow. I need a drink. I know. I know. So with the deadlock jury, they try him again and um, new witnesses come up again. There, there ends up being a secretary from the sanitarium that said that she spoke to Virginia and Virginia told her that Arbuckle basically took her by the hand in the bedroom, lays her down on the bed and then lays on top of her. And then she can't remember what happens after that. Like almost as if she had like blacked out from the pain. So it's really interesting. We have this really large man that could have, you know, and a woman that has 
a bladder that's about to rupture, maybe from vomiting, maybe from just her chronic illness. And then he lays on top of her and that's all she can remember. Um, and the secretary seemed like, you know, it didn't seem like she had just come forward with this story. Um, she said, I hadn't been subpoenaed until now. Nobody reached out to me to ask me my story. And we know that that happens a lot, especially in sexual assault cases. So the jury deliberates for, give me a guess of how long you think they deliberate. Uh, Random, I know. I'm gonna say two hours. Shannon says one hour, not long, five minutes. Ooh. Five minutes and they rele- They have a written statement that would have take long- taken longer than five minutes to actually write. So there's all this, you know, suspicion around, did the defense provide them with this statement? Because it's like, this man shouldn't even be in this court. This is so ridiculous. And da, 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 his name's been drugged through the mud. Um, so, but anyway, he gets acquitted. Um, so he, he sort of, his, his career is done. He loses his multi-million dollar contract. Um, nobody will hire him. He does go back to Hollywood. He gets, he ends up, he ended up divorcing his other wife and he gets remarried. Um, and he does some directing under some other names and eventually makes some appearances in some films under a different name as well. But um, his career was pretty much shot. So he ends up dying of a heart attack at age 46. And um, just, you know, one of those things, well, we will never know. But he did go through two trials. And um, I just don't think there was enough to convict him. Especially with some doctors saying there wasn't any evidence of sexual assault. I don't know. It's a tough one. What do you guys think? What are your thoughts? I would, I want to, while people are, are adding their thoughts or that they want to jump on, I do want to say like, as much as I was kind of grossed out saying about staying in his home, Fatty Arbuckle also has, or had a bungalow, which was very common back in the forties and fifties is you had your primary home, which was your mansion or your large home that was out in sort of the surrounding area of Los Angeles now, which has become a huge metropolitan area, but there were definitive places that were separated by lots of, you know, kind of desert land or where we are subtropical desert land. Um, So he had a three bedroom uh, cottage, not cottage or um, bungalow. Yeah. Sort of Spanish Adobe bungalow on La Cienega drive in West Hollywood. And that is, yeah, it's been a restaurant for years. It's gone. It's been several different restaurants over the years, primarily gay restaurants back in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. But um, and one time it was called Arbuckles, which it did not do well when it's called Arbuckles. And then I think it was the, it was the Blue Parrot. Um, huh. Yeah. So realized that you were telling that story is like, oh, I have been, in, I have been in Arbuckles' home. What um, what would be the cross street there? La Cienega uh, and Santa Monica Boulevard, about two oh. two short blocks down. And then he had a huge Tudor mansion on West Adams. And if mm. you go Fatty Arbuckle, West Adams, Los Angeles, it's really a magnificent, magnificent home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, people are saying at least he should have been convicted of rape. Um, oh, gosh. Yeah. Absolutely. It's very interesting. It was a very interesting time. I mean, it's this poor woman, you know, there were a couple ways in which the newspapers and the media was so involved in spinning the story. And either it was, you know, they would only use older pictures of, I mean, like when she was younger, older pictures of her to kind of highlight the fragility of her and that he was this monster. And then towards the end, it started to get spun of, you know, she gave everyone on this the studio lot crabs, and yeah. she was such a whore. And um, you know, of course, that's what you do when you want to change. When you want to change the narrative, the go-to is to make, you know, make the woman a, a whore or a slut, which is yeah. infuriating. Yeah, exactly. So I saw someone put up a recipe for orange blossoms. I'll have to get on that. Fantastic. <laughs> 
Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. Oh my gosh, it's like double than when I started. Good to see you, everybody. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. So what are you talking about tonight, Scott? So that's a, a great case to start with. And I think um, you, you came up with both of the ideas for our subjects tonight. Both oh, of these. listeners did, definitely. What's that? Our listeners came up with these ideas. Oh, they did. Right. Okay. So our yeah. listeners, I mean, this one, this next one actually could probably be explored by us for several reasons in a much longer format. And um, I love that the commonality of you putting these two cases together is that it's a great example of crimes being committed and people being treated poorly um, and history really obfuscating and getting a lot of facts wrong. So our next one is the story of Francis Farmer. So most people that are into noir or classic movies know who Francis Farmer was, um, a really, really gifted actress that was primarily working between 1936 and 1959. Um, her career just really shot off, of course, at the beginning as a young ingenue in Hollywood. Um, she had come from the Midwest and her life was really, I'm gonna say immortalized by a movie that came out in the 80s, uh, 1982 called Francis, where she was portrayed by Jessica Lange. Um, it was a fantastic, fantastic cast. It's a fantastic, fantastic story. Unfortunately, it's and gets a lot incorrect. Um, it does get the tragedy and trigger warning. There are some things here that are, are concerning as well um, regarding how she was treated later in her life. So I'm going to read from a really, really, really well-written uh, mini uh, biography that is on IMDb. I would hope that everyone here is familiar with the Internet Movie Database. I used to use it as a casting director all the time. And I like there are aspects of, you know, different chapters of my life that is, although I'm working in, in as a psychologist today, I'm still got casting director brain sometimes. I'm like, wait, that person was in that movie. And so I'm always like, I'll be watching something with Dan and we're on IMDb. I trying feel to like I out. use it every single day. That app is probably in my top 10. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. And there's a Broadway version too, which is really spectacular. Oh, it gives you a whole history of everybody that's worked on Broadway. So uh, Frances was born in Seattle um, in 1935. She went to Hollywood. And back then, the way the... the the way entertainment worked was radically different from how movies work today in that you signed with a studio and you signed contracts, especially if you didn't have power as a young actor, you had to sign a longer contract. And it was basically some indentured servitude because basically you were going to do exactly what they told you to do for that seven years. And sometimes that might be you pissed the wrong person off or you didn't sleep with the right studio head and they would basically, you know, pay you pennies and you wouldn't, you wouldn't be released from your contract. You couldn't go or do anything anywhere else. And of course the contract system uh, finally got dissolved years later by very powerful actors who felt like their careers were being um, taken advantage of clearly. One of the ways you could work around the studio system was as your star was on the rise if you became like really box office gold, then you had a little bit more pull with the studio heads. But as we know, there's a lot of has been written about how um, actors, particularly female actors, were really chewed up by the system. And Frances Farmer was a really gifted, beautiful actress, but had some substance abuse issues that clearly started exhibiting themselves as what we would consider self-medication for the stressors she was under. So after her death, her movie gets made, her life gets made into a movie called Francis starring uh, uh, Jessica Lange. 
And it's a really great dramatic retelling. And what it does capture is the challenges in the studio system. It challenges the really toxic enmeshed relationship she had with her mother, which Mm -hmm. was quite significant. Um, And that has been verified by uh, Francis's sister long after she died in a book that came out later that was corrected. So there have been three notable books about Francis's life. And what we found out is the one that the movie Francis is based on was, uh, let's just say that the writer took a lot of creative license and liberty with aspect of her life that stuck around as rumors for years that just weren't true. Um, so she had the seven year contract with Par- seven year contract with Paramount. And, you know, she was making these movies. I think, um, I mean, I would say this, there's not a lot that she did that was really notable, but it would also, you could also conjecture that she really wasn't given a chance to have movie roles where she could really shine. And she was sort of a work in progress. Um, In 1943, after a decade in the industry, what became really uh, noticeable is that she had an incredible alcohol problem. And she would had several uh, driving under the influence, major car wrecks, um, came close to killing people, uh, blackout drunk many times. And this was a huge publicity problem for the studios because the studios, kind of like publicists do today, they they monitor every part of your life and they create sort of this veneer of truth that may not be always accurate. Um, So what started happening is that her mother came to Los Angeles and was able to, excuse me, and um, was able to get legal guardianship of her and then have her committed. Um, Her mother came into, uh, into town after several driving incidents under the influence. One in particular is really interesting because it's, it's not, easy for us to think about this as a real thing because we're so used to turning on headlights. She, this, there was a blackout period in the forties that was, you know, you didn't drive with your lights on and there were curfews due to the war effort. And she, yeah, she um, was, had her headlights on bright during a wartime dim out zone. And so she was charged with a DUI and arrested. And then she forgot, or she just neglected to complete pay her bail. Mm -hmm. So, warrant was issued for her arrest and then um she got also some charges filed against her by other studio employees like a hairdresser and a costumer when they were trying to kind of wrangle her into getting ready for a scene to be shot while she was under the influence was she being assaultive or yeah she was being assaultive yeah i mean that there's not a lot of information on that but let me just let's just say that it would have been really significant that someone of that stature hair and makeup making those kind of accusations at the time because it's making it against the actor it's making against the entire studio system that holds a lot of power so yeah yeah. it must have been bad then for them to speak up exactly so her mother gets a guardianship and has francis committed to washington western state hospital for the first time in 1944 Mm -hmm. and then after brief stays with like the what we would consider really barbaric treatments, really, really barbaric treatments for alcoholism and mental illness at the time. Um, you would be alternating um, freezing cold baths, ice baths, and then heat baths wrapped in cold sheets. Um, a lot of isolation, various bizarre diet things. Um, what year gets, was this again? This around? was like 43 was the first one. But um, then she went, no, I'm sorry, 1944. Then two other commitments followed, one for several months in 1945 to 1946. And the longest one happening between 1946 of April and uh, March of 1950. So almost a year. Oh, my gosh. Really, really significant. Um, she had several, um, several marriages. And by this time, like 1954, she had married a blue-collar worker um, a guy named Alfred Lobley, and then left him and moved to a very rural area of Eureka, California, where she worked anonymously in a photo, a photo studio. So uh, 
she was able to revive her career, including um, through this new ele- this new um, medium of television. And um, so what I'm doing is I'm skipping over like a lot of drama that is portrayed in the movie, which the movie is worth watching. But here's the thing that was reported in the movie that was not accurate at all. The mm-hmm. author said that she had uh, had a lobotomy uh, while she was on one of her psychiatric holds. And lobotomy, for those of you who don't know, is a really brutal and no longer practiced. I mean, there, we have chemical lobotomies, and sometimes there are lobotomies con- uh, performed when people have severe, severe seizure disorders. Sure. But the old lobotomy, and trigger warning here, basically if it was was with an implement that was somewhat like an ice pick or a, 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 an ice pick shape with a loop on the end and basically they would go and if it was a transorbital, transorbital lobotomy it would go through the inside of the eye push the eyeball out go through the eye socket in the back and scramble the brain scramble the pre, part of the prefrontal cortex up here it could also be done through the nasal cavity and um, that in itself is a whole story. There are several podcasts about yeah. the completely fucked up doctor who did these basically as a traveling show, traveling across the U.S., giving people lobotomies as a as a cure all for all sorts of things. And once again, the, I hate our profession and where it came from. This is really we're talking really about a very dark period in in psychology and psychiatry. But you know, there's always going to be bad people, and this was at a time when there were very few treatments and there was no oversight, and you could kind of put your shingle up and say you were a doctor, and there was no you know who's going to check your background. Right. So this, the lobotomy was um, was presented as this magic cure all for back pain. Um, yeah. Also really like horrific things that were considered inappropriate at the time. Many people will don't know or maybe don't remember that at that time, and another trigger warning for being uh, explicit, masturbation was considered to be extremely unhealthy. And it was the mark of an unhealthy mind and participating in masturbation for both men and women was supposed to leave, lead to all sorts of ills, like all sorts of insanity and physical ills. And so what became a treatment for kids that had been placed on psychiatric holds for masturbation, they gave them lobotomies. My dad says, I thought you'd go blind. <laughs> That's the old old uh, wives tale. Don't masturbate. Yeah. Go blind or grow hair on your palms. Yeah, like, I'm saving my palms on a regular basis, but um, <laughs> How awful. Let's just scramble your brain to fix things like back pain, but God forbid, that makes so yeah. little sense. Um, so oh, anyway, the great thing is, is that Francis did not uh receive a lobotomy, uh, it was used for dramatic effect in the movie. But what likely did happen were some probably very, very harsh treatments that were standard of care at that time for psychiatric holds. Um, It would not have been out of the ordinary for her to have received some kind of uh, electrical shock therapy, what we call ECT now. ECT actually is used today, much more controlled settings. And for people with chronic, severe, dangerously severe uh, depression, Uh, ECT can be quite fantastic and you're completely sedated and you're given, you know, the right, just the right amount of shock to the right amount of brain. That's not happening at this time. At this time in the psychiatric community, you're basically hooked up to electrodes. They shoved a a rubber rod in your mouth to keep you from cracking your teeth and they turned on the juice. Yeah. They show a depiction of that actually in the movie Changeling. So uh, right. when Lena Jolie is in the hospital, some of the women who are, you know, acting out, um, they get the ECT treatment. So one of the things um, that we do know that regardless of the fact that she was not traumatized by a lobotomy because that was fictional, what was really true was she was relentlessly, especially in that long period, the almost year long hospitalization, she was re- repeatedly 
uh, raped by orderlies at the hospital, um, abused, uh, tortured, uh, starved. Um, and she was known to have had like numerous um, significant scarring on her limbs from the number of rat bites that she had oh, when she placed uh, solitary. Just oh. absolutely, absolutely beautiful. I mean, beautiful, not beautiful, uh, brutal, brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a sociopath for saying that, just brutal. <laughs> that yeah. was the test, you just failed. Yeah, so, I mean, there's an interesting scene at the end of Francis where supposedly, where, you know, there's a, a parallel storyline. The, the truth is, is that she came back after all this and she was like found, you know, after she was doing these anonymous jobs and somebody got her on a TV show. She came back on the Ed Sullivan show. She came back on an episode of a show called This Is Your Life which was sort of a feel-good review. And people were like, oh, where has Frances Farmer been all this time? And because of that, she was actually offered a job in television hosting and uh, uh, showing classic movies and interviewing the actors, you know, who had formerly been her peers. Oh, wow. Them. So well, now what's interesting is the show is like, she actually was really pretty good at this. But the way they portray it in the movie Francis is they have Jessica Lange completely zombied out. And just propped up. and Yeah, like she's propped up. And that's not what was happening. What was happening, though, is she was still drinking, which was still a problem. And at this time, she had started to develop like a really serious smoking habit that had always existed, but now had got really um, significant which led to her, likely her death from esophageal cancer in 1970. So, um, Whoa. yeah, I mean, there's the book that was written, there are several books, one by uh, Radcliffe, Will There Really Be a Morning? Another one that's a fictionalized biography, Shadowland. Um, that author, William Arnold, was actually taken to court by her estate because he had fabricated so many of the incidents, including the phlebotomy. And he said that his sources were family members, physicians, nurses at Western State where she was hospitalized. And um, later years, they just, a lot of historians and fans of hers, and including family members, dove in and were able to debunk many, many of the statements that were made. And finally, her sister, um, Edith Farmer Elliott, wrote a book called Look Back in Love that's considered to be a lot more realistic about what she went through and what she struggled with and the effect Good. that her mother had on her life. Right, right. Good. I'm glad there was some something written by someone who actually cared about her. Right. Ooh, how tragic. I, I don't know how any woman survived this era, especially in Hollywood. <laughs> I mean... Hollywood seemed, you know, it was such this um, magical, glamorous fantasy, and it seemed horrific for women. Well, and I, as you know, as we said in the chats earlier, I think that, you know, somebody, Rebecca was the one that made the, um, the comment about Harvey Weinstein, and that's actually a really, that's a really great parallel example. I mean, there are fantastic actresses where you go, well, whatever happened to Mira Sorvino? What happened to Ashley Judd? Sure. And 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 countless others who didn't even get as far in their careers as these actresses did. And what happened was Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. You know, the only reason that Gwyneth Paltrow was actually, I mean, Gwyneth Paltrow infuriates me for the goop stuff, but I think that she is a naturally really gifted actress. You know, I mean, like her gift for comedy is kind of impressive. It really is. You know, the story behind her, you know, she was getting um, really, really treated poorly and abused by Weinstein. And Brad Pitt basically walked into his office and threatened to strangle him. Yeah. And so she was able, like, and then he left her alone. Right. But who, who was there to advocate for these other actresses that didn't have someone to say those things? But Mira Sorvino genius if you ever saw the movie mighty aphrodite which is problematic because it's a woody allen film oh, but I feel, I feel an episode in the future on that with the new documentary oh <laughs> i've not watched it yet so yeah and i it also you know talking about francis farmer and conservatorship um 
people really want us to talk about Brittany too. So yeah, conservatorship like, in general. Yeah, I have so many mixed feelings, especially because that's part of the work I do. We we should talk. We should schedule that for next time. I think that's a big one, so yeah. that people understand what conservatorship is. Um, from and I will say this: like some of the things that the reporters are saying about what conservatorship is in the state of California, it is not being represented well in the media at all. I mean, it's just not. Yeah. Yeah, I think that will definitely be something that you can take a strong lead on since that's what you do. And, um, uh, you know, hospitalizations of people seems very mysterious. And how can that happen? And how is it done? And that would be nice just to talk about. We really haven't gone into depth on something like that. So. Yeah, Pia has a really, no, Pia, thank you for that statement. I don't want to diminish Ms. Paltrow's experiences, but she was always going to be okay. I think that's a really good observation. And, you know, she she had probably also coming from the family that she came from. She also came from money. Sure. Like she came from a lot of money. She oh, came actors. from a established actress already. You know, she had somebody fighting for her. There are other people that. And one of the things that's infuriating, especially uh, uh, Ashley Judd, is like Weinstein just poisoned the entire Hollywood about her saying that she was insane. Nobody wanted to work for her. She was awful. It's just like, just because, you know, she doesn't want to get near your slimy self. Ugh. Yeah. I know. Wow. That's a um, very depressing story. If I'm just going to be honest about poor Francis. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, it is, it's an interesting story that she actually did come back. Like, you know, she had this, this career that came back and she was respected for the television work that she did. And, but it is, it's a, it's a tragic story how people get lost in the system and, you know, our natural tendency to soothe ourselves can, can really be expressed in unhealthy ways. You know, if your self-medication or your self-soothing is to use substances and that's your only go-to, that's going to, that doesn't have many, that doesn't have many positive sequelae down the road. And it sounds like, for her, obviously, her mental illness was never, you know, really treated properly, and um, neither was her substance abuse disorder. I mean, so you know, you talk about like these years later when she came back to do this, um, you know, hosting of the show that it was still or again prevalent in her life. Um, almost the only part of kind of quiet respite that she had was when she was just went away and was doing these mundane jobs and very interesting about the pressure of Hollywood too. I know we've been asked to do episode on like child actors and well, as, as Esther just even wrote like uh, Judy Garland, her story has been told over and over again and it, it should be told. Like yeah. there, like there's maybe there aren't a lot of good angles left that haven't been already covered, but the, that story should be told because that abuse of child actors still happens today. Not so much at the hands of studios, mm -hmm. but at the hands of parents that are vicariously living out their own needs through their children's careers. Did and you that? Did you read the article that the the actress and I apologize that I can't think of her name, but she played Matilda. She was a child actress. Oh um, yeah, um, God, she's great, and she's a writer now. Yeah, she just wrote a great article about her experiences that have been, you know, triggered with um, Brittany Mara Wilson. Mara Wilson, that's it. Yeah, it was such a great piece. Um, just at eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, the crazy, crazy things that people were asking her um, in interviews. And it's just, I don't know. Yeah, that's a whole another topic. We could go down of how young women are interviewed in the media and who they're supposed to be and how quickly they have to grow up in ways that they shouldn't. So, well, that, I mean, that's part of it. Also, what I do like as well is that I mean, there was a, a case many years ago, if I can get the information, I mean, a lot of it's been buried, but there was a male casting director with a significant meth addiction 
and he's he is no longer alive. I think he either died of his meth intoxication or he killed himself. But he was going down for he had been molesting young male actors for years. It was really awful. It was actually happened bef- right before I got into casting, so it would have been probably mid to late 80s. But um, you know, there are a lot of adult males, a- adult male actors, teens, and adults that get manipulated and sexually assaulted as well by men and women that have a lot of power in the entertainment industry. What's great, I mean, it's an awful experience, but what is great is those actors and those celebrities are coming forward and saying, share, they're being very vulnerable about what it feels like to be put in that, in that place. Is that, is that the incident that that documentary is on with, you know, the Corey Haim, Corey Feldman, that whole circle? This was involving that guy, but it was involved. It wasn't so much about them. And Corey Feldman, like, I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine what he has been through because he's, you know, he really was a child that grew up in the system. But he's been very cagey and very coy. And I, I would hope at this point that he would just really come and speak out. Like, I would really wish he would just tell the truth or feel comfortable. And like, maybe he feels intimidated. I don't know what his motivations are, but he keeps hinting that he's going to tell these stories. And I, I, if, if he has something to say, I think that it would help people for him to say it. I can't remember what the name of that documentary is that covers all of that, but I have a copy of it. I think your husband actually gave me a digital copy of it. Um, but I was like, why, why is nobody talking about this? Or how is this? That needs to be like re-released on Netflix or something in this day and yeah. Especially, I mean, that's what, I mean, the Ashtar Kitty was saying too, the like Corey Haim's story is particularly, because at least Corey Feldman survived and Corey yeah. Haim clearly did not. Like whatever right. trauma he was experiencing, you know, he was not able to survive that. Yeah, exactly. Wow. You know us, just keeping the good topics flowing, the feel good moments are just here. Gosh. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, this was fun. You look really nice, Scott. Nice Thank you. As the as the lights have slowly gotten dimmer in the room. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, I love Thank you for posting the picture. Like, th- that was our friend Deb's. We won't say what yeah, year. party it was. <laughs> that was before Sydney. No, no. Sydney... If you look at the picture closely, like the full picture, she's grabbing onto my leg. So she's walking. She's probably two. So it was maybe seven years ago. Oh, my God. I have to go on a diet. Because, man, <laughs> I, mean, I had some great cheekbones and a jawline at that time. So I got to get back to I got to get it, be able to get back in that tux. That's a great tux I had. You need to get in the tux. My boobs still don't fit this dress. I mean, <laughs> what are you going to do? So I don't know. <laughs> give, give some of what you got to me and we'll figure it out. Okay. <laughs> Well, thanks, you guys, for joining us once again. We are so appreciative of you uh, every single time we do this. Uh, Hopefully, there's more movie watch parties to come because it was a blast. I know our friends in Canada and the UK, um, well, UK, it was 2 in the morning, so sorry about that. Um, But Canada, they couldn't get the film. It wasn't available on Amazon for them. So I think I might have a workaround for that. Oh, I, I, you know what I bet we could do is I could, we could do, don't nobody tell Amazon. Maybe we could do it, but, um, this is the end of us right now. Hmm. Go, I could go, we could make it also like, um, as big zoom meeting for our patrons because we can have hundreds of people in our Zoom and do screen sharing. Do you think Amazon is literally not listening right now? The feds are on their way to knock on your door. Alexa's in the other I will not be a part of your federal crime, Scott. <laughs> Esther, look, Esther, these are not CGI eyebrows. You keep saying that I have not moved my eyebrows. Here they are. I just don't have wrinkles because I had it all fraxled. (laughs) (laughs) Laura says code 12 for Shiloh. Thanks, mom. That's awesome. (laughs) Lots of people want to do a a day trip out to the winery, by the way, in Wineville. 
<laughs> I am all about that. Like, let's let's set a date and go at a table right now. So <laughs> let's do it. Let's do it. All of our locals, any or anybody who wants to come in for the weekend, get your get your shot, put on a mask, and let's go. We could do like little reservations of six. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you guys have a wonderful night. Thank you for being here. Good night, Scott. See you next week. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys.